Hi, I'm Margaret Maitland, Principal Curator of the Ancient Mediterranean at National Museum Scotland. In February 2020, we hosted a special event to discuss the legacies of British archaeology in Egypt as part of our partnership in the AHRC-funded project Egypt's Dispersed Heritage. Join myself, project researchers Alice Stevenson and Heba Abdul-Gawad, and our chair, broadcaster Samir Ahmed, for Egypt, past and present, in dialogue. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome. My name's Lee McCulley, and I'm Adult Learning Officer at the National Museum of Scotland. So I'm really delighted to welcome you to our panel discussion today. Our discussion is going to look at the legacies of British archaeological practice in Egypt. Our speakers today are museum curator Margaret Maitland and the project researchers for Egypt's, Egypt's Dispersed Heritage Project, and that's Heba Abdel-Gawad and Alice Stevenson. So each speaker will give a short presentation before we move to a panel discussion. And I'm delighted to welcome our chair, the journalist and broadcaster, Samira Ahmed. So we will, of course, have time for questions at the end. So if I can ask you to please welcome our first speaker, Margaret Maitland, and I hope you enjoy it. Thank you. First of all, thank you so much to all of you for coming today, um, and especially to Samira, Alice, and Heba, um, all of whose work I admire very much. Um, it's wonderful to have you uh, here and to be hosting this event at National Museum of Scotland, um, the first public event uh, associated with the AHRC-funded project Egypt's Dispersed Heritage, in which we're pleased to partner with Alice and Heba. Um, it's especially wonderful that we're having this event now, even though it's a very um, chilly, snowy uh, February, considering that this event uh, marks the first anniversary of the opening of our new Ancient Egypt Rediscovered Gallery um, last year as part of the final phase of National Museum Scotland's 15-year master plan. I'll only speak very briefly since I want us to have as much time as possible with our wonderful guests. Um, and to open uh, the discussion to all of you. But um, I want to start by giving a bit of background on the history of our collections here in Edinburgh and um, how we're trying to um, address these in our new gallery. Um, like most museums, our collections have been built up over hundreds of years through diverse routes. Um, the vast majority of National Museum Scotland's Egyptian collection, though, was obtained uh, through the distribution system, which um, Alice will be speaking more on shortly. Um, this system was introduced in Egypt in the 1880s, whereby expeditions from institutions like the Egypt Exploration Society, led by archaeologists like Flinders and Hildred Petrie, were given permission to excavate in Egypt and in return received a share of the finds. Um, the Egyptian Antiquity Service had uh, first selection of the objects that were found, and the remainder were given to um, the expedition, who distributed fines to their supporters, who had helped fund um, the excavations. So hundreds of museums in the UK and around the world acquired objects through this method of, of crowdfunding excavations, including um, us and um, some of the objects that we have on display in the gallery. The earliest um, significant acquisition to the collection, though, came even earlier um, in the 1850s. Uh, several hundred objects excavated by Alexander Henry Rind, a pioneering Scottish excavator who went on to become the first archaeologist to work in Egypt. His systematic approach and recording was unprecedented at the time and has made it possible to meaningfully reassess his finds today and to tell compelling stories like that of the tomb that was used and reused for over a thousand years that forms the centerpiece in the gallery. I'm currently researching uh, Ryan's archives that we hold here at National Museum Scotland and his collections, and also the context in which he, he worked in Egypt in um, the mid-19th century as part of a Headley Fellowship with the Art Fund. In the new gallery, we've tried to address these and other complex histories um, behind how our collections came to Edinburgh through colonial contacts, such as this coffin, um, which was part of a group of dozens that were given by the Egyptian government um, under diplomatic pressure as a gift to the Prince of Wales in 1867 and subsequently dispersed to museums around the UK. 
and also through purchases that disperse fragments of monuments such as the Mastaba of Nesut to museums around the world. Today, we're no longer actively collecting ancient Egyptian antiquities unless there is a clear and specific connection to our existing collection or to Scotland, and um, we always follow due diligence procedures in that as well. In telling the histories of our collections, we've made sure to include the contributions of women who have often been overlooked. Um, For example, Scottish-born artist and archaeologist Annie Piri Quibell, who was one of the first women in the UK to become an Egyptologist. Um, And beyond these um, fascinating Scottish figures, um, we also acknowledge the contributions of the Egyptians, whose labor and expertise these archaeologists relied on. And we feature Egyptian uh, Egyptologists as um, authoritative voices in our films, um, such as Fatma Keshk highlighting um, the contributions of Egyptian archaeologists such as Salim Hassan and the importance of community outreach in Egypt today, um, and which um, Heba is doing more work on as well. Um, Through our familiarity with ancient Egypt from a very young age, I think many of us often forget that ancient Egypt isn't something that resides only in our museums. It's still very much part of the landscape and lives of people in Egypt today. Um, So in the gallery, we've tried to go somewhat to redressing that disconnect, situating the collection within a colorful landscape uh, using large-scale photographs and an AV with an Egyptian narrator, um, bringing together people both past and present. Our digital labels also offer windows onto Egyptian perspectives, allowing our visitors to experience the sounds of celebration from the festival of Luxor's um, Muslim patron saint, Sheikh Abdul Hagag, um, that continues traditions from the ancient Egyptian festival of Opet up to today, um, and which we had narrated um, uh, by our wonderful Heba Abdul-Gawad here today. Over... The past year, um, we've also taken our collections and stories beyond our walls and into communities across Scotland through a varied national program, um, largely led by um, my colleague, Dr. Dan Potter, who's also here today. Um, We've been running uh, knowledge sharing workshops for Scottish museum colleagues to help them better care for, document, interpret, and display their Egyptian collections. Uh, We currently have our touring exhibition going around Scotland, uh, which is in uh, Perth Museum right now. We created a series of videos that you can view online in collaboration with partner museums in Glasgow, Aberdeen, Dundee, Paisley and Greenock, which share more of these stories of how Egyptian objects became part of collections across Scotland. And my colleague Dan has been conducting an extensive review of Egyptian collections across Scotland um, so that we can re-identify objects that have um, previously um, uh, gone unnoticed, improving our awareness of where and what these objects are. Um, And he's producing a detailed report that will be published online um, within about the next month. Um, Now we're pleased to be partnering with Egypt's Dispersed Heritage Project, um, in which we're collaborating with Alice and Heba um, to share some of our collections and their histories with communities in Egypt. Um, And I'm sure we're uh, looking forward to hearing more about the work that they've begun, so I'll pass over to them. And thank you very much for your attention. Thank you very much, Margaret, and thank you very much to the National Museum for uh, welcoming us and hosting today's event. Um, So I'd like to begin, actually not in the National Museum, but the British Museum. Um, And many of you may have been familiar with this project, uh, The History of the World and 100 Objects, uh, that Neil McGregor narrated uh, on the BBC, a radio programme, very, very successful. Um, And what interested me about this programme was that in the very first episode Neil McGregor describes his rationale for the project. And he says that in these programs, I'm traveling back in time and across the globe to see how we humans over two million years have shaped our world and been shaped by it. Yet given all of that time and the expanse of human history on the planet, where does he begin? He begins with an ancient Egyptian mummy. 
Why? So this is the research question that's interested me. Why is ancient Egypt so exceptional within our museums? Why is it treated so apart from other world cultures? And part of the reason is the way in which the British conducted archaeology in Egypt and the results of that. Um, and between 2013 and 2017, I ran this pro um, project, Artifacts of Excavation, the distribution of finds from British excavations in Egypt, 1880 to 1980. Headline, what we found during that project was that as a result of British those finds ended up in more than 350 museums across 27 countries over five continents. And there really isn't anything else comparable in world archaeology that has a legacy of this scale or of this scope. So let me just say, Margaret's alluded to some of it, but let me just give you a bit of background to how that came about. Now, in Britain, unlike France and Germany, which uh, the state would sponsor foreign archaeologists, there was no opportunity in Britain for that sort of funding. It had to be, as Margaret says, crowd-funded. Um, and the first organisation to do this was the Egypt Exploration Fund. And this lady here, Amelia Edwards, a Victorian novelist and travel writer, she used to write ghost stories for Charles Dickens's uh, Christmas magazine. Um, and she's quite an extraordinary lady. So I'm going to tell one side of her story here, and Heba will perhaps introduce the other. But for the purposes here, she uh, went to Egypt in the 1870s. Uh, and so the story goes, she fell in love with the country, but was horrified at the destruction of the monument she saw around her. And so she resolved on a return to Britain um, to develop an organization that would fund scientific excavations, uh, that would publish the results, would advocate uh, for protection um, and study of that heritage. And so it was that in 1882, this uh, headline uh, came in the Times newspaper, and you can see it, you can see it there, Egyptian Antiquities. That's the enticing draw here. Um, if you fund this organisation, think of what treasures might be uh, uncovered. But the very last line of that column confessed uh, that it must be distinctly understood that by the law of Egypt, nothing is allowed to leave the country. Now, this is the same year in which uh, the British uh, bomb Alexandria, march on Cairo, and Egypt becomes enveloped within the British Empire as part, as a veiled protectorate. Um, and so when the first excavations happened, nothing is allowed to come out of the country, but through diplomatic pressure, um, two of these uh, monuments are um, presented to the British Museum. The following year, Flinders Petrie enters the scene and he excavates for the Egypt Exploration Fund at Tanis and he is able to remove hundreds of objects. Um, but as you can see, there's a, there's a marked contrast in what came out the year before versus what Flinders Petrie was bringing out. Now, it's often said that Flinders Petrie, he's famous in archaeology because he um, focused on the small and the everyday. You know, that's important for understanding archaeology and the past. But it's also political and it's also a convenience because this material, he could argue, would not be of interest to the Egyptian or rather the French authorities that ran the antiquity service. They wouldn't be of value in Egypt, but there'd be lots of museums in the United Kingdom that would be more than happy to get these trinkets trifles and oddments. And so this is, this is the agreement he strikes partage. It means the French word for sharing. Um, and so the floodgates open. At first, it is only the trinkets, trifles and oddments, but within a few years, it's back to the monuments. And this uh, object in particular ends up on the docks in a rainy March morning uh, in Liverpool before being shipped off to Boston. One of the things that also interests me is not just uh, where this material went, it's also why. And it's not because uh, there's some sort of eternal fascination with the pharaohs in all of these countries and all of these places. When you start looking into it, there's all sorts of motivations why people want to acquire bits of ancient Egypt. Um, 
In the UK, there's many reasons. People wanted to link to the Bible, uh, link to the classics, uh, there's sort of a cult and gothic interest as well. There's all sorts of motivations. But what's also quite interesting is the number of women that campaign for funding, that campaign for their local regional museums to fund the Egypt Exploration Fund and get Egyptian objects into their local areas. Um, and that can be linked to uh, the role of women uh, campaigning for suffrage at this time for more uh, active roles in society. This is one way that they can do that. And we can see this in Glasgow. An exhibition is put together in 1912. Several women come together to do that, including Margaret Murray here. And in the catalogue, she explicitly states uh, that the standard of civilization in any country is judged to a very great extent by the position of women. Where the women are treated as inferiors, they become inferior, and the nation covers accordingly. Where the women are treated as equals, the nation improves and advances. So that is link between ancient Egypt and modern politics. And there's always that political undertone uh, in these acquisitions. We can go to Australia and New Zealand, for example. Um, to New Zealand, when we look at the reasons why uh, the Dominion Museum wanted Egyptian objects, um, the very humble pottery vessels here, it's the Prime Minister who writes and says, thank you very much. And it, but there's no interest or discussion of the objects or why they might be significant or what it tells us about ancient Egypt. It's all about linking politically to London, to the centre of empire. And that's even more explicit in the case of Australia, where the local papers uh, write about Egyptian objects arriving in Australia. And as you can see here, an antique gift from England. Egypt's completely um, eroded in that story. We can also go outside of the empire. Japan was great interest in acquiring Egyptian objects from British archaeologists. But yet again, it's not because there's uh, an interest in Japan in ancient Egypt per se. Um, there is, at this time, uh, an investment in developing archaeology as a science for a nationalistic reason. They want to develop Japanese archaeology. And they saw the way that the British were working with Egyptian objects as a model. And so that's why they wanted it. But they were also very interested in the way that the uh, British were able to extract from Egypt these antiquities because they wanted similar uh, agreements on the Korean peninsula where they had imperial ambitions. And we can go to Ghana. There is a collection excavated by British archaeologists in the National Museum of Ghana, um, which had a very important part on the eve of independence from Britain, using these objects to uh, valorize a pre-colonial glorious Ghanaian past with a link to Egyptian civilization. So there's all sorts of reasons. I'm just giving you a little taster here. And in a shameless plug, if you'd like to read more about that, uh, it's in this book, which is free, entirely free to download from UCL Press. But I want to introduce Egypt's dispersed heritage. So that project looked at um, the extraction of objects out of Egypt, but I was always very conscious during that project that I hadn't taken the time, that there hadn't been the opportunity uh, to look at what Egyptians felt and thought about that. Um, and it's clear that there is a great need to address that history, because when you look at the legacy of this spread of objects to museums, um, we can see something quite problematic. Ancient Egypt has become so commonplace in our museums um, that uh, it is taken for granted. Ancient Egypt's not a particular time, and we can see it here on this label. It's got no date, even though there's thousands of years of diverse and extraordinary histories and stories and peoples. But it's neither a, a place either. Um, it's uh, an ancient land, but where? Where is the modern country in this picture? Um, and when surveys have been done of um, the public in advance of planning new galleries, and the questions posed, well, would you be interested you know, in, in uh, more recent histories after Cleopatra? And it's clear that there's great reverence for the ancient, usually pharaonic past, but there's more negative attitudes as a result, more dismissal of the modern country um, in that. So the Egypt's Dispersed Heritage Project um, is 
um, an attempt to take this research that we've done and to take it back to Egypt and to make that history of British extraction accessible because this is a story that's not been made available to Egyptians. Um, so Heba has been translating a lot of this work into Egyptian Arabic for a range of audiences um, because as Heba will explain, at the heart of the project is um, a keen sense of social justice that this history isn't something we want to tell back. This is something that we want um, to develop as something that communities can find, can benefit from um, and can feel part of. Um, and we want to do that through Egyptian modes of expression. This isn't through scholarly papers or doing this sort of um, communication. It's using the rich uh, traditions of storytelling in Egypt, um, oral histories and visual cultures to engage um, and uh, amplify Egyptian voices and their, um, and their views on, on heritage issues. And the second part of the project is to try and bring some of those expressions back to museums in the UK, um, not to placate the place of Egyptian objects in these museums, but rather to put ancient Egypt back into the frame of modern Egypt. Um, but I'm not going to say too much about that because that is what Heba is leading on. So thank you very much. Uh, well, thank you very much, everyone, for coming, and thanks for the uh, National Museum of Scotland for hosting us and for Samira for agreeing to chair the session today. So um, I'm taking things now from the UK and to a much sunnier, warmer weather. We're taking things back uh, to Egypt. Sadly, no snow happens there, or luckily. Uh, something that we've been witnessing nearly every day, or like mostly, I wouldn't, every day would be an exaggeration. Perhaps every week is a headline uh, of how, like, uh, the colonialism elephant have been exposed in British museums recently, and everyone is very much pro the, re the confrontation of the colonial history in Britain. Headlines like these uh, confront us nearly every week. For someone like me, um, as a person, as someone who's Egyptian, coming from a previously colonized uh, country, and an archaeologist as well, while this is something that uh, Britain today, or archaeologists today, are finding so much pride in, like such decolonization turn, I tend to find it quite distressing. The approach that is currently used is very much Western-centered. We're returning objects uh, from the UK to Egypt for the museums to clear their conscience, or this is the impression that they are giving me as uh, someone from a previously colonized country. It's very museum-centered, Western-centered. There is a focus on returning the object. There is a focus on repatriation, rather than confronting the people. What did colonialism mean for the people? There is so much about colonialism that goes beyond and more than exporting objects from one country to another. There are the variety of traumas that existed, the many lives were lost, the many memories that were there. Where are the people, where are us in this current decolonizing turn? We don't exist. On the other hand, not only are we totally absent from such narrative, from such current decolonizing narrative, but we're, only but we're also absent from the decision-making process. Everyone is making a decision on which, where, or what should be returned to Egypt, except the wider Egyptians. We have claims, let's say, from Egypt itself, coming from certain uh, state groups within Egypt. For example, if we talk about the Rosetta Stone, of returning the Rosetta Stone back to Cairo to be displayed in the Grand Egyptian Museum in Cairo. However, we have voices from within Egypt themselves, uh, from Rashid, like the city where the Rosetta was retrieved, that they actually don't want the Rosetta stone to be returned to Cairo, but to be returned to Rosetta, where the city came, where the stone itself came from. Who gets to decide where the object uh, is returned, when or how, and which object actually gets to be uh, returned? If the whole concept of repatriation is uh, bringing or like giving back social justice, then this has to be done in a way that acknowledges the multivocality or the, the diversity of communities that exist in Egypt and finding ways where all those voices could be amplified in the decision-making process. On the other hand, one way of how museums today are confronting the legacies of uh, like the, collection, the collection of finds or how objects ended up being in Egypt by glorifying a variety of like British archaeologists. Petrie, which I think Margaret and both Alice have spoken about earlier, he's 
considered as the father of Egyptology, but he was also equally involved in a skull measuring exercise in identifying the superior race. A very racist science exists. Does this make him a pioneer or make him a racist? There needs to be a way of balancing such discussion. Amelia Edwards herself, who was uh, involved in the massive crowdfunding of the objects, she was also involved in looting or collecting through illegal means. And here we find her describing that herself, like she found the illegal aspect of collecting quite interesting, quite exciting. Does this make her a pioneer or does this make her a looter? There is a need to find an ethical approach of all this. On the other hand, whenever we talk about decolonizing, where there is a focus on Africa, and as Alice has mentioned, Egypt is not a place nor a time. Egypt is also in Africa, but we never hear about Egypt in the current decolonization turn. On the other hand, the whole of the Middle East has been also colonized but rarely do we speak about Middle Eastern collections in terms of the current decolonization turn. There comes a view from Egypt. Currently, like the, the wave of decolonizing has started when, like, let's say 2017, 2018, and it's looking like the Western world is leading the decolonization turn. However, the Egyptians from nearly 1920, they have been calling for an anti-colonial approach to Egyptian heritage. They've been opposing uh, the export of finds uh, by uh, uh, international uh, exporters or foreign missions. So we find in a piece of, uh, like in a newspaper dating back to 1922, there was an Egyptian Egyptologist that Margaret has shown, uh, shown him before and you would find him here in the gallery, Salim Hassan. He's done a tour of all the European collections and uh, he was trying to assess what is the state of Egyptian antiquities back um, in Europe. He came back writing a series of articles once per week, and there was an anonymous, a very interesting piece here in 1922, an anonymous reader, or perhaps the editor chosen to be anonymous. He wrote, aren't we their children? He's totally condemning uh, the way that the objects have been leaving Egypt. And he's saying how there is a connection to the land, like the ancient Egyptians are connected to this land. And he gives us an impression of how like, colonialism was a very highly complex emotional act. Objects being gifted, being looted, being exported. Did this act of dispossession, however it happened, whether it's legal or not, did have a huge emotional impact on the people. We find, for example, with the discovery of uh, Tutankhamun, we all know about the Tutmenia, but rarely do we ever discuss what did the discovery of Tutankhamun mean for the Egyptians? How did they receive such discovery? And we have here Munira al-Mahdiya, she made a big hit, uh, say, al to celebrate the discovery, but also in an anti-colonial movement, discussing how we are the children of Tutankhamun. Tutankhamun had to stay here. There is also a wave that only recently Egyptology or Western Egyptology have been looking at, which is how we can look into non-Eurocentric ways of interpreting ancient Egypt. This is something that the Egyptians have been doing and calling for since 1926, but we are either silenced, we are either invisible or totally dismissed and accused of not caring about our ancient heritage. Even today on social media, many Egyptians, this is a random Egyptian user here on our project's uh, Twitter page, he, he sums it all up. He feels very sad to see the monuments outside of Egypt, but at the same time, he's very happy that they are well looked after outside of Egypt. It's a very complex issue. There is no to return or not to return. This dual path is dangerous and it doesn't really solve many of the problems. On the other hand, they themselves, the Egyptians today on social media, discussing how we can ethically confront the legacies of, the, of those historic archaeologists. He acknowledges that Petrie was a pioneer in archaeology, but he also did the grave mistake of exporting objects outside of Egypt. So they are actually doing what we are at the museums trying to do. More recently, with the antiquity sale in the art market, it's usually the Egyptian immigrants here in the UK have been pushing for the case and making it more public, either before, even before the state gets to acknowledge uh, the expert, like the, the sale of objects in the art market. So, if I'm criticizing all of this, how can we bring something that we could actually use these archives, we could use these collections in a way that could help the communities. If the whole concept of anti-colonialism or decolonialism should be about social justice, and this is how we can use our archives and collection either to bring back or take back social, to offer social justice to communities, and on the other hand, to ensure that there is this multivocality is recognized and acknowledged. This is something that we are doing in the Egypt Dispersed Heritage Project, which I'll give a very brief introduction on. 
What we are doing here is that at first we identified how we can use the archives and the collections that we have here in the UK, particularly in Edinburgh, Liverpool, Manchester, the Petrie Museum in London, as well as the Horniman, how we can use it to benefit the communities back in Egypt in a way that takes us away from this concept of repatriation, to return or not to return. So doing a scoping exercise, we realized that there is an education need in Egypt, although like ancient Egypt is part of the curricula here in the UK, there is no dedicated curricula for ancient Egypt within Egypt itself. On the other hand, there has been a rise of a variety of regional and national museums opening up, but most of them are opening up in areas where uh, the most deprived live, like the communities that live around all those big projects are the most de- most socially and economically deprived communities. How we can ensure they are equally also involved and voiced uh, in those collections or in the story of ancient Egypt too. Something else is that there is usually a focus about Egypt in terms of its pharaonic past. Rarely do we uh, have any indication of Egypt's intangible heritage, and that comes with our infamous uh, puppet storytelling uh, heritage which is getting totally dismissed and it's nearly disappearing. Equally, there is the rise in the use of social media for like uh, for the heritage and how the Egyptians are engaging daily. How can we use all this in order to uh, confront or offer an anti-colonial model that benefits the people and ensures we achieve justice and inclusion? So we've identified few partners. One of them is a community school in Cairo called uh, Tawasul. They help they help single mothers as well as the children who could not, could not afford to uh, head to schools. Like it's a community afternoon school. We're working with them together with uh, Mahatat, a public enterprise which makes public accessible for everyone in the streets in Cairo. And we're equally working with uh, a private education enterprise. It's an an NGO which is interested in introducing new uh, educational resources to the communities and in a way to to defy the the backlashes of the national curricula. We're working equally with the comic artists. This is something that has been rising since 2011 in transferring all the stories. Uh, we've used the model, which is an, a male-only uh, group that they, they produce like comic called El Uzba. And then we also, for like the gender, <laughs> to balance the gender, we've worked together, we'll be working with a female artist, Dina Muhammad, and she created uh, a comic, a veiled comic superhero. And she's into like anti-colonialism and defying stereotypes. So we're working with her in providing a narrative on that. And we're working also with a cultural enterprise that is publicly available for everyone. Everyone can afford uh, heading to Sawi, which makes it, which makes, which makes us uh, being able to have access to those who don't usually go to museums. Our approach is based on recognition, responsibility, respect, and relationship that is, could be sustainable between us and the museums and between the museums and the communities back in Egypt. And the guiding principles, it's mainly very local and it's very sensitive to the local uh, tradition. This is the model that we're hoping to achieve. Like it's an example that we hope that for later we can produce more funding for, or a model that others could replicate and use where collections could be used for the communities. I'll just show a few examples of the outputs that we've had so far. Uh, our project is called Egypt's Dispersed Heritage. But then once I was in Cairo and started working with the communities, uh, when we were trying to identify a term or an Arabic Egyptian term to talk about the project, they wouldn't call it Egypt's dispersed heritage. They wanted to call it our dispersed heritage. So once we are in Cairo, once we started the work, it became our dispersed heritage. One of the comic artists we're working with is Nasser. He's the one on um, the left. <laughs> and uh, he's very infamous. He's very, uh, he's very talented. He's very funny, far more funnier than me. I'll, I'll be very brief. <laughs> But we were having few discussions of how we can convert the archives and the stories of how the objects left Egypt uh, between us. And they were really interesting, hilarious stories. So we thought that we will make a comic series on the dialogue that we're having together, something that could also give an indication. This is me uh, on the left, and this is Nasser, and in the middle is the grumpy uh, heritage that is dispersed. Um, I did ask him to make me look younger than this, but this is the youngest. Uh, He says, I can get. Yeah, and this is the first the, the first teaser that we've posted, and we got uh, 
huge response and this is the first comic actually and here I'm telling a story so we're giving a piece of actual information how the objects were dispersed by Britain into 350 institutions into 27 countries and his response was immediately wrapping himself in tissue paper like a mummy that he would equally want to uh, travel the world as well like the mummy. <laughs> These are uh, the activities we've had. And others are calling us for Twitter to do another model for like Sudan and Kushite. And this is a visual concept on dispersed heritage, working with a visual artist. How can she capture in one icon the concept of heritage being dispersed? So uh, we've got a variety of events coming up. So do follow us. Uh, do follow our Twitter account and hopefully uh, see you in other events soon. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for your presentations. And everyone can hear me all right so far. Um, I should say my involvement in this, I'm the, the person who's not a professional Egyptologist on the panel, um, but I interviewed Heba and Alice for my Radio 3 Sunday feature documentary, The Victorian Queens of Ancient Egypt, which is on the iPlayer for free, um, apart from the licence fee, obviously, um, which um, talks a lot about Amelia Edwards and absolutely grapples with this issue of particularly these pioneering women who were also looters and that whole complex double history, um, which is partly why I was jumped at the chance to come here, because um, I'm so an admirer of the work going on and if I suspect most of you have already been it was my first visit to the gallery um, that Margaret was involved in redesigning and it's just stunning to see how we can present this complicated history in a way that is very aware of the complexity of the past and respectful and it's beautiful so thank you um, so I wanted to pick up on some of the issues that emerged from your presentations and I suppose one of the first is um How far you all feel that there's a genuine sense in, in museums um, of wanting to make the kind of collaborative project that UCL is pioneering? I don't know if you want to take that one first, Margaret. Um, yeah, I jumped on the opportunity of being able to be involved. Um, it's, um, uh, you know, uh, we'd uh, worked with a few um, Egyptian <laughs> Egyptologists in developing the gallery. Um, and I've been an admirer of Heba's work and, and, and many other colleagues. And, um, but just, um, I think, actually being able to work with her on a project of this scale um, to actually help us connect up with uh, communities in Egypt is really, really exciting. Um, you know, we've, we're experienced in, in now with working with Scottish communities, and we want to tell different stories, but to actually engage in that um, dialogue and hear um, from Egyptian communities, um, their feelings, um, and to also, again, share the collections that we have the privilege of, of holding. Um, I think that's part of our um, responsibility and how we move forward as uh, museums. Um, uh, we've just started some of the collaboration, but Heba was showing me yesterday some of the responses from um, sharing uh, images of objects in our collections and, um, and, and the responses that we've got back. Um, and I was just blown away from, um, uh, by hearing some of those responses. Um, what uh, sort of they, responses are you getting? So, yeah, um, I mean, maybe Heba should actually say a bit more, but um, I think I didn't realize so much that, um, you know, as Heba was saying, the, uh, you know, that there's, so the schools program doesn't focus um, so much on material culture, that, you know, it's much more on the sort of broad pharaonic history. So to actually share examples of material culture uh, with, uh, you know, with uh, Egyptians, they were seeing objects that they hadn't uh, encountered before. I wanted to come to talking about the Egyptian perspective, but I just wanted to establish first how far there's a broader appetite in the UK from the museum's mm -hmm. point of view to be having this kind of um, relationship with Egypt, given that there is this tension, isn't there, about a fear of being asked to give stuff back. Um, I mean, I, th I think there is a lot of, I do think there's a lot of will, um, but often the institution wants to control that narrative. And I think what's refreshing for this 
um, this project is it's really letting go and have a uh, it's a very grassroots project and that this just came out of conversations with these groups they are the ones that come up with the approach in Egypt, yeah. in Egypt. Egypt yeah. Yeah. well talk me through there what, what sort of I mean how did it come about and what sort of things were you hearing that led to this project okay I have to say well it came about from the interview we've had from Beyond Beauty and I remember that one of the questions you had you gave me was do the Egyptians want them back oh so I should just say I first interviewed Heba for front row um, when there was an exhibition in London yeah. called Beyond Beauty which was all about well, it was drawn on collections yeah. from all over um, the from all over the northwest and northwest, northeast yes. as well in in London. And I found that there is a tendency, like everyone, like the members of the public are so interested. Every journalist interviewed me for this exhibition had this very same questions: Do the Egyptians want them back? And there, there is a problem with this that I am seen as the representative of the whole of Egypt, and obviously I'm not. <laughs> like it's a country of 100 million population, multiplicity of voices. And at the same time, there is this tendency of, I find this, uh, the dual path of should the objects be returned or not, it's counterproductive. I'm not saying that objects shouldn't be returned, but I'm saying that unless there is a way that all those voices could actually contribute in the conversation and the discussion and involved in the decision making, especially voices from abroad, like from the source communities, and unless this is led by the source communities, then I'm not sure that this would actually be of benefit to the actual people or at least achieve the justice that this whole anti-colonial approach should be on. So we started the conversations and I've done uh, some of my own personal work on social media. Then I was engaged with uh, Alice in the Artifacts of Excavation project. And there was this uh, opportunity that she can apply for funding for a follow-on that we could have impact, like transform um, the knowledge that was created on the Artifacts of Excavation website into something that could be impactful for the public. And we thought that perhaps Egypt is, is the place to do this because first of all, uh, like as you'd usually see in any ancient Egyptian gallery, like modern Egypt is totally, uh, it doesn't exist in the story. We are not there. Egypt is seen as like, uh, neither, it's frozen. It's neither a time or a place. So we're totally dismissed from this discussion and everyone tends to make decision on behalf of us how we perceive our heritage, how we don't. So we thought, okay, let's, um, it's not, we're not really engaging the people because I find this also uh, patronizing because I, people, uh, I think not just in Egypt, everywhere around the world, perception of heritage is very personal. Like what we, what I perceive as heritage might not what you perceive as heritage. And the way we engage is also personal to us. So one of the ways was how I can take those stories back to Egypt and create something with it. So I had few partners and it's mainly, I have to say, like uh, my family WhatsApp group is usually my first go-to <laughs> whenever I need to make any important or not important decisions. So that was the first, uh, the first spot that I've, we've done, like a vote and what shall we do? So we created another WhatsApp group with uh, all the aunties are there, but also the younger generations. The younger generation have their own separate uh, WhatsApp group. And then I started contacting a few of the social enterprises that I've mentioned here that I'm already aware of and I, I admire their work, I've been following them. And I felt that they could be our way to reach those usually hard to reach groups. And I think one of the issues that comes is how, like you were saying, if how the museums feel about this. I think there is usually a tendency for museums to work with Egypt or to, like, to have an impact within Egypt. But it's usually focused on Egyptian archaeologists or Egyptian Egyptologists like myself. It usually comes in a form of collaboration or training. But there is very little that you can do to the community that is not top down, that is not us teaching the community, this is your ancient Egypt. I wanted to do something that um, initiatives that are already existing, something that can make a difference in people's lives and how to show that these stories can go beyond the museum. This is like if a story of how an object is left here to Scotland, for example, this was like um, a start line on us talking, me with my relatives about Edinburgh, what's the weather in Edinburgh, etc. So there is a bit of geography there. And there is also how like Currently, with the current social and economic situation in Egypt, it helps people to find pride in themselves in the sense of being part of a global big story. Um, I wonder, um, you know, there was, I think it was in your presentation, you know, there was a map of one of these big new museums that's being built. Yeah. And one of the, the sort of complexities is that Egypt is a major tourist destination for yeah. Western tourists who come to look at the ancient antiquities. How would each of you describe the relationship between the kind of the Western visitor and ordinary Egyptians in connection with, you know, those heritage sites and, and the whole issue around what's on display? 
Yeah, I mean the the history of uh, museums in Egypt um, is is a complex one, and was was initially instigated by the the Antiquities Service at a time when it was um, run by. Um, um, French and British um, uh, archaeologists, and um, certainly when the the Egyptian Museum first opened, they they had thought about it being. Uh, uh, I've just found this in my research recently. They initially um, had it as a free institution, but then were overwhelmed with Egyptian visitors and decided they needed to have a fee to actually limit those those numbers of people. Um, so, um, I mean, the, the fact that there's um, so many more uh, museums being built um, across the country, so much has been focused on the Grand Egyptian Museum. Um, but there's um, a lot of museums that are being built in uh, uh, other towns and cities, and um, I think that those ones are maybe you know they, they are still aimed at tourists. But I think they are there is a bit more of an interest in actually um, engaging um, uh, local visitors um, as well, or I hope so. And they're they're certainly starting to do. Um, programs for schools or um, outreach. Um, I mean, that's something that's new-ish new in the grand scheme of things to UK museums as well. Um, uh, you know, in the past, it, there was very much a focus on these as museums existed um, for scholars uh, to study, and um, it's, it's over time that um, we've worked towards being something that's appealing and inclusive for all of our, our visitors. Um, Alice, how does it look to you, that relationship between Egyptian people mm. and then these grand museums of um, I think there's going to be a great challenge because those museums have been seen as tourist destinations, mm. not places that Egyptians would feel necessarily comfortable. And um, in conversation with, you know, Heva, there's, there's not the same sort of, I get a sense of tradition of going to look at things. Let's yeah. go and stand and look at something. Yeah. Um, Egyptians, you know, they're so much more animated and they know and explore the world in many different ways in, in the sort of the Western museum way that we uh, present cultures and stories is not necessarily the way that Egyptian communities would be most receptive to those stories. Um, we also have, I sent you all a link I found on, on Twitter. There's someone who's, um, uh, she's a, a sort of travel vlogger, and she'd posted a video that she'd shot in some tomb where she said, oh, if you pay an extra $60, you get let in 10 minutes before the rest of the visitors. Yeah. And I had it all to myself, and you're allowed to use your camera phone. And obviously she was full of admiration and respect for the, the heritage but I felt something really uneasy about $60 for that 10 minutes of access. And I wonder, yeah. you know, is that part of the dilemma? Um, it, it, it isn't, it isn't, in the sense that, for example, like entry fees for us is subsidized because it's like a public, like it's like the state, uh, like funds part of Same a ticket India. for me as an, as an Egyptian, yeah. but, but not for tourists. And obviously, uh, for me as an archaeologist, my concern would be like the state of conservation of the tomb. How much are, are we letting people in? But I think that it's done in the sense that um, there is a, num a certain number of visitors every day that is counted. And once it exceeds this number, like tickets don't go in. It is understandable how like you feel like culture is becoming or like sites are becoming for those the most privileged. But we have also to realize that we're talking about totally different economic conditions in Egypt as well. This is one of the main revenues for us economically. And um, there is, you, you, you would need to, like, there is a very, I don't know if it's a fine line or a strict line, but with these matters, especially for cases that are very complex, like in Egypt, there is no totally right way or totally wrong way around it. There is, I understand the need because we do need the money and it's justifiable. And I totally also understand how this can be um, unsettling for you or you would find it disturbing. But at the same time, um, I, can, I can neither agree or condemn. Like it's, it's one of those complex issues that there is a need for it, even if it can be difficult for others. So, mm. No, it's how it's used. Um, can I ask a bit about this concern, which is still brought up sometimes. It's brought up with a lot of countries which have colonial pasts, where, oh, the standard of care or the way local visitors treat artefacts is problematic and they climb over things or they don't respect them, they touch them too much. I wonder how far that's still an issue that's being brought up in regard to um, Egyptians and their own ancient heritage. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's something that, again, as I was saying, it's, it's a complex issue. I mean, on my, my last visit to, 
to Egypt, I saw some um, tourists in um, a particular um, tomb at the site of Giza who were um, horrified that there had been some graffiti scratched into um, the wall um, of the tomb. And as they, they looked at it, they were like, this is shocking, look at that. And they just, they, they ran their hands over the wall. And you know, they, they, you know, they had the best of intentions. They were concerned, they were worried about the, the protection of the, the um, tomb, but then they didn't realize the fact that the, um, the oils and dirts on their hand would, act, would actually contribute to that de deterioration as well. So I think um, you know, we need more education for everyone to, to understand how we can all um, do our part in, in trying to protect um, the, the monuments. And certainly, I mean, as Hubba was saying, I think that the tomb that you mentioned um, you know, is one where um, there's been so, it's attracted so much visitor attention that they have to limit the number of, yeah. of people going in because, um, because it's so fragile. And um, the, uh, I think, as, as far as I'm aware, the, um, the Ministry of Antiquities is working with a company called um, Factum Arte Factum to make a, a replica of that tomb as well, so that um, it's possible then to protect the original while um, letting uh, people still experience um, uh, the, the, um, what it's like to go into that tomb. So, um, yeah. um, I would just add to it as well. I think the, um, it's being used as an excuse, you know, that these objects, for example, are safer outside of Egypt mm. than they are in it. But you just have to look at that history. Liverpool was bombed in the Second World War. Yeah. 3,000 objects is feared. Hull, Leeds, Germany, Italy, earthquakes in Japan. Um, a crate of archaeological objects was shipped over to Jamaica only to sink on the way over. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's not, the taking material out has been just as destructive as um, it might have been if left in situ. Yeah, and absolutely. As uh, I think you and particularly Heba um, have <laughs> talked about how much focus has been recently about um, Southern African yeah. um, and also Australian um, yeah. sort of protests and demands for objects back, particularly because they are the remains of, of, of um, dead people. I wondered how far there's been um, returns from anywhere else of ancient Egyptian antiquities. I think usually the cases of return were objects that were not taken through colonial through the colonial era. It was mainly like repatriation where objects were have proven to be stolen at like after the 1980s, after like uh, the the ban of the uh, the license, the export license, and how there was the law that antiquities shouldn't leave Egypt anymore. This was this is the main repatriation stories or like objects that after provenance research, like the case for the Met Museum, then it was proved that they were stolen during the, revo the revolution and they were returned. And um, actually, I have to say there is like there has been recently a case where they discovered that one of an Italian diplomat have been smuggling Egyptian yes. antiquities outside with his like uh, diplomatic, with his like diplomatic passport. And uh, currently, this like this is also a thing. So um, repatriation in this sense of objects that left during colonial times, uh, it, there hasn't been. And although Egypt has does have a wish list. Uh, that is coming from the Ministry of, of Antiquities. But in terms of um, like recent ones, like cases like most famous objects, like there hasn't been any return yet, despite like calls for return for certain objects. Um, Margaret and Alice, you anything to add to that? Um, I don't know how far there are pressures for specific returns or mm. just a general thinking and rethinking about objects and collections. Yeah. I mean, um, I think uh, in some of the, the cases of uh, the returns that have happened, as, as Hubba was saying, um, it's, it's been because there's, it's been possible to prove that, um, that objects had um, left the country illegally um, from things like uh, you know, um, monuments with, where there was enough documentation that um, uh, an Egyptologist was able to identify that the fragment had been there in, in, in say, 1985 and um, ha had clearly then um, left um, subsequently. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's something that uh, there's at least quite a lot of researchers working on right now through the Circulating Artifacts Project, through um, a project that's looking at um, trying to track illicit antiquities trade on uh, Facebook, which is um, now proving a, a huge problem. Um, that um, there are... On Facebook, how does that work? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, well, what they've been able to show, it's the ASAR project, yeah. and they've shown that, um, so when Sotheby's or Christie's have a sale, that they take the catalogue, 
it's um, look to order, look at this object, this is what you're looking for, this is the price that it's going for in London, New York and Paris, and that's directing looters on the ground. So we've got that direct evidence now that that's, that's happening. And it's shocking that there, there um, isn't, it's not against the terms of use Facebook, of Facebook yeah. and other, some of these other sites to sell antiquities through mm those sites, um, which is mind-boggling. Um, but on the other hand, maybe it makes it easier to trace some of them because yeah. of the online presence. No? Um, but there can be um, direct uh, messaging too through these sites yeah. as well. So, um, so that is then um, very difficult. To, those, that's not um, public facing. Um, so that that's going to be um, you know very difficult to trace without actually some of these um, organizations actually um, monitoring it or being um, informing taking responsibility yeah. yet another thing to hold against Facebook um, let's take <laughs> questions from you so to get your questions ready I'd one last question to ask and in a way it's a question that takes us back to the beginning um, why we know that children in particular have this fascination with, with the worlds of ancient Egypt. We know that it's a much more complex history than a, a, you know, a sort of self-contained uh, single story. But I'm fascinated by how embedded it's become in young people in Britain's lives and in many other countries too, along with, I think, well, I always make the comparison of the dinosaurs and the Romans and the ancient Egyptians used to be these three worlds that fascinate. And I wonder what each of you think about why that is, or if there's anything that's changed in how your young people in particular are getting their first experience of that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I fell in love with Egypt uh, when I was six <laughs> years old. Um, so um, I, I, the, the appeal was, of course, the sort of... Um, uh, the fact that there's such like sort of richness of preservation of the past, um, which you don't really get um, without the sort of climate that that Egypt has, which then you know is just such amazing fuel for the imagination um, in terms of how we can um, relate to the past and actually um, you know to 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 have so much um, to base our understanding of how people lived um, so long ago. But I think then, um, as part of that, the, the way that um, it's taught in schools and the, the familiarity in, in our museums, um, I think many of us have um, then seen Egypt as part of, ancient Egypt as part of our own past and our own history. And that's something, certainly, in how um, it's been presented as part of this universal yes. history. And that's something that goes right back to um, uh, the earliest uh, Egyptologists. Um, that, that was one of the ways of then saying why there was um, a right to, for them to um, uh, be uh, collecting these objects and that, that was part of um, uh, human civilization's story. Um, but uh, I think that's something that we're trying to move towards today to actually reintroduce well, um, the Egyptian reverse. voices into yes. that because it, it's by saying it's an, a universal uh, human history, um, we've then actually um, inadvertently or sometimes you intentionally remove the Egyptians from that um, story. And so that's um, something that we're going to have to continue to, something we've tried to do already here, but that we need to do more of. Heather. I think that um, especially the case for the UK is very interesting because it's it's part of it's our ancient Egypt. It's like the Brit even in the in the headline in the Independent covering Beyond Beauty, what gave us our ancient Egyptian galleries. So it's becoming part of the British history, part of the British story. The fact that actually there is also like uh, an ancient Egyptian collection at the doorstep of nearly every town. This makes it very accessible. It's there. It's part of the curriculum. But it's also how the fascination with um, the intimacy of the story of ancient Egypt that is usually told through the human remains and how that you can get like face to face with an ancient human, um, whether talking about the ethics of this play or whatever, this is an, a different story, but it's one of those cultures that you, you are like face to face with the actual person from the past. And, and I remember you telling me about, you know, the fact that we know so much about their makeup. Yeah, yeah, their makeup. We identify yeah. on a very personal level with Yeah, even when you find few objects that have like evidence of where, like people how, like people how they've used it, like, like it's like touching something that you know that someone has touched before. And there, there is this fascinating, this, um, emotional link that people can easily make with ancient Egypt because of how human and intimate the finds that we are able to have. 
I think this comes also with the Victorian a way of telling ancient Egypt story and the publicly uh, like being one of the first public accessible museums were actually for ancient Egyptian collections that also became like it, it's part of the British story today and even in the past. Um, I'll just quickly pick up on Herbert's point here that it's in our national curriculum and um, teachers can choose to do Mesopotamia, I think you've got India, but invariably it's Egypt that's chosen to the extent that we've got um, generations that are more, here in the UK, that are more familiar with ancient Egyptian artefacts. Um, than Egyptians yeah, are. True. So we found this yesterday yeah. when uh, Egyptians were shown yeah. objects in the collection and they've never seen this sort of material yeah. before, but it's likely that you show a school child or someone else the objects here and they then, you know, that's a scarab or that's a shaft. Do you know, I have to say, when I was recording my documentary, we were in Bolton and we met this kid, he was like five, and he was just bursting with passion and he loved ancient Egypt and he knew the names yeah. of all the objects. Yeah. And, and I think there's something incredibly powerful. Fantastic, thank you. Thank you for all your thoughtful and provocative questions. I think it's great to have such an honest dialogue this way. One can only imagine what some of those Victorian collectors would be thinking um, if they knew we'd be talking this way about their methods. Um, so thank you to Dr. Alice Stevenson and to Dr. Margaret Maitland um, and to Heba Abz El Gawad. And I hope we might have a follow-up um, in time uh, yeah, to tell us more about how Egyptians are feeling about this. And thank you all. And if you haven't been to the gallery, go and have a look. It's the most amazing experience. Thank you again. Thank you.